scripture is James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. If you're using the Pew Bible, that's going to be page 952. <clears throat> or it's on the screen. That's cool. <clears throat> All right. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. morning. Thank you, Mike. I did not expect all of that. Um, I'm definitely here with mixed feelings uh, this morning. Very happy to have one more chance to preach before we move. Um, uh, yeah, very happy for that opportunity. But at the same time, it is, it is, my, my heart is heavy. Um, one, just because of the passage. <laughs> I've had a lot of thinking to do about this about for my in my own life um and i'm i've started so you get some you get my rough draft uh maybe in about 50 years i'll have my completed sermon but also because we've we've been here for seven years as a family and we came we had we didn't have any kids and now we have four and um so this place has been um this place has been our home and our family for the past seven years and we love you all and we are really, really gonna gonna miss uh, miss this place and you all. Um, so yeah, leaving even even for a good thing is really it's not easy. So yeah, um, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together this morning and be here. In each other's company, worshiping you, blessing your name. We pray that we would hear your word, that you would speak to us, and that we would be, be changed. We pray that as we uh, take the Lord's Supper, that we would taste and see that you are good, and that we would know that we are loved. your name, amen. <clears throat> so I, I recently had a conversation with a, with a friend that I hadn't seen in quite some time. Um, and in the course of the conversation, we talked about a bunch of things. One of the things we talked about was he, is, he has this new opportunity, uh, a new job that is going to, wait, I need to go right here. Uh, a new opportunity, a new job that will uh, result in a significant pay increase. Um, and my, my reaction was, like, excited and congratulations. This is really cool, really exciting. Um, because, yeah, like, a new job, more responsibility, more money, that's, that is a good thing, right? Like, we, we get excited about that. Um, it's like, it's confirmation that you're on the right track. It, it, it means that you, someone has seen you as competent, that you do something well. 
and, and it's probably going to open new doors. It's going to take you somewhere. And, and in some ways, it's kind of like it's, it's the fulfillment of the American dream, right, to, to take that next step. And so it's in this conversation, I started actually, after the fact, kind of reflecting on my, my reaction to, to, to the news uh, of this potential new job. And I was like, why was I, why, why was I excited? Like, what, what, what's going on there? Like, what's, why? Uh, is a pay raise inherently a good thing? Uh, and I, I was thinking about it more, I'm like, thinking about what we consider blessing. So, like, is it a blessing? Would we consider a blessing, a, a job promotion a blessing? Or an unexpected gift? Or an opportunity to buy a house? Or, or, or you know, getting really good returns on an investment? Or th- things like that. Like, those, we, we, we talk about those as blessings. I was just, just thinking about that. That's blessings, right? So, so I've been thinking about all this stuff. And, and uh, in, in society, I think we have a bunch of shared assumptions. Things that, as a society, we pretty much agree on as true. Uh, for example, if you have enough money to purchase a house, you probably should purchase a house, right? Because it's better than renting in, in most circumstances. Um, you should invest. At, at very least, you should invest, like, excess money. But you should invest. You should prepare for the future. Uh, what about this? Independence and self-sufficiency are, like, they're good values, things that are really important. Or another one would be maybe, like, we should seek to prosper, to, to, do, to do well. Right, so a bunch of, bunch of assumptions um, that some of them are, like, so obvious as I was thinking these through that it's, like, it's basically, like, saying two plus two equals four. Like, why even? It's, like, a waste of time to say it. Um, and if these assumptions are true, then it means that we have to do certain things, have to set up our life in a certain way to meet some of those goals. And I've been thinking about this quite a bit. And when I add up a bunch of these assumptions, these assumptions that as a society in general we share, the resulting like life picture that I get is more or less an autonomous life where we seek to prosper, we seek to do well. And when I say it's autonomous, I mean like a life lived without outside control where we're free to do and pursue the things that we want to do and pursue. What do you think? This is what I was thinking about. It's, yeah. I've been thinking about this a lot. What, but seriously, what do you guys think? Is it, it's, it's interesting. Do you, is there any truth to what I'm saying? Like, do you, does that make sense? Does it resonate at all? How have they impacted the ways that we've set up our lives? This is something I, I've been thinking a lot about. And, and the book of James, unless I'm mistaken, which is, is possible, um, but I'm pretty sure that the book of James has something to say about these assumptions and about the goal of an autonomous life oriented toward prospering. What we're going to see is that James offers an alternative life orientation. An alternative life orientation. And, he, and what we're going to see is that rather than it being a matter of like us selecting whichever life trajectory we want, this is like a matter of good versus evil type thing, which is pretty common in James. It's like, you do this, and you're good, and you do this other, or this other thing, and it's not good. Right? So, so today, I want to look at James's alternative life orientation. All right? And it starts in verse 13. In verse 13, he's going to describe 
this alternative life orientation. So he says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we'll go into such and such a town, we'll spend a year there, and trade, and make a profit. So James is addressing this group of people, and this group of people, most scholars would call them merchants. Right? These are people who are upwardly mobile in a, an ancient world where there's basically no middle class. Right? There's not much of a middle class at all. These are people that have enough, at least, where they can put their money to use with a hope and dream of one day becoming landowners. Because once you're a landowner, you've arrived. Now, before I, I go, go into uh, too much more detail, I want to clarify something about merchants. Okay? I'm going to say that word a couple times because I don't want to have to repeat today or tomorrow, you know, you who say that whole thing every time. Right? But that is basically, when I'm saying merchants, I'm referring to these people. You who say today or tomorrow we go into this town or whatever. And also I want to say that don't plug your ears if you're not a merchant. Because most of us aren't merchants. <laughs> I don't think we use that word very much for most of our, our jobs these days. So maybe the, most, the best equivalent would be like business people. But also don't plug your ears if you're not a business person. Okay? Uh, because, because James's aim, what he's trying to do, is not talk only to the business people or the merchants. What he's trying to do is challenge a life orientation that focuses on profit, which I think, in many ways, is hardwired into our society. Right? This is a life orientation that he says is arrogant. It's characterized by boasting, and as a consequence, it's evil. So, if you have a 401k, or a 403b, or an IRA, or you have stocks or bonds, or you have an investment in commodities, or real estate, or cryptocurrency, or if you have a savings account, a checkings account, or a piggy bank, okay? Then you should probably pay attention to what James is going to say. All right, so James, James calls out these merchants as people that know what they're doing. Today or tomorrow, we'll go into such and such a town, we'll stay for a year, we'll make a profit. They'll trade first, and then they'll make the profit. That's the plan, right? They, they, they know where, they know when, they know how long, they know what, and they know the outcome. The outcome is profit. Now, if we're honest, if we're honest and we, we read that sentence without knowing what comes next, which I know we, we just read the whole thing, so you know what comes next, but, but if you just take that verse and that, that, that description and you think about it honestly, you're probably like me and you're like, I don't see any problem with that. That is, that is a very concise business plan. That's all it is. It's a very concise business plan, which is pretty much essential if you're going to succeed in business or in life, right? If you do not plan, or planning doesn't necessarily guarantee success, but if you do not plan, then you're pretty much guaranteed failure. So about, about but more or less 10 years ago, I think, Adrian and I lived in Peru, and we went on this three-day mini vacation to Paracas, which is a city that's three hours south of Lima, where we live. And um, so I'm in charge of planning this vacation. And uh, so we've been there before. There's, there's a strip that has a bunch of hotels. It's really nice. And um, there's tons of places to stay. And so uh, I'm not a big planner. I like to be spontaneous. I like to have fun, as Mike said. Um, so I tell Adriana, here's the plan. We're going to go and get there 
we'll check out the hotel, climb on me like, and, and, and stay there. This is a fantastic plan in my mind because it is a plan that entails very little planning. So <laughs> it's great. What could go wrong? Well, I, I didn't take into account that it was Holy Week in Peru. And in, in Peru, you don't work from Wednesday through Friday. So no one does. I didn't, but no one else did either. I also, uh, unlike me, you know, most people actually reserve a hotel before they go on vacation. So we get there, and we go to every single hotel on the trip, every one. And there is not a room, not a single room to stay in. And you can imagine uh, how, this was, how this went, I'm guessing. <laughs> so there's one hotel that's like, hey, we'll let you know in a few hours there might be a room. Thank God. <laughs> Several hours later, they called us, and they had a room for us. It was more expensive than we wanted, but whatever. We had a place to sleep for one night out of the two. I can finish that story at another time. But my point is, planning, lack of planning, resulted in failure. Right? Failure. So, like, planning is important. It's not bad. It's, it's generally a good idea. I learned that. And the Bible is not against planning. Let me just say that. It's not against planning. Proverbs uh, 21.5 says, The plans of the diligent uh, lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. Proverbs 24.27, Prepare your work outside. Get everything ready for yourself in the field. And after that, build your house. All right, so planning, not a bad thing. And the fact that the merchants are planning... Not a problem. So what's the issue here? What's going on? Keep reading. Verses 14 through 16. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that, that appears today, or sorry, that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So verse 16 makes it pretty clear. There's an issue in the statement in verse 13. Right? The statement itself is arrogant. It's arrogant because American merchants presume things that they shouldn't presume. They have assumptions that are not safe assumptions. And by stating it so boldly, so confidently as a statement of fact, rather than probabilities, they're boasting. Then in, in verse 15, James presents an alternative, an alternative statement. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. What, what's different here? Why is this statement better? Feel free to like, shout out in the answer. Okay, submission to God's will. Anything else? Trust. Yeah. I see two foundational differences, and it's connected with both of the, with the things that you just said. First one is that it's a conditional statement that depends on the Lord's will, if the Lord wills. And the second is it does not assume that life is a given. If the Lord wills, we will live. Besides that, the, the and do this or that, is pretty much the same. In fact, I would argue that today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a city and spend a year there and do trade and do profit. 
I think all that could fit where it says do this or that. Because planning is not the issue. And we have two differences. Two important differences. And I want to slow down and, and take a look at these differences. Because they challenge some of our everyday assumptions. And they identify two major failures on the part of the merchant. And these are failures that we need to avoid. And it's, it's in these differences that we're going to see the alternative life orientation that James is building. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to invert the order of the two, um, two failures. And we're first going to look at the statement, uh, the, the way that in which the statement does not assume that life is a given. Right? It doesn't assume that life is a given. So for, first, this is, this is the first piece of pride that James attacks. And look at verses 13 and 14 and how verse 14 responds and attacks verse 13. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. See, the, the, the merchants fail to recognize their own frailty, the finitude of life. And as a result of that failure, as a result of that failure, they misplace their efforts. They misplace their energies and they orient their lives around profit. Jesus told a story, a parable, to almost the exact same effect. In fact, the scholars think that James is probably thinking about this story when he writes this. It, it ha, it's in Luke 12, verses six, 16 through 21. We're going to pick it up on verse 18. But basically, before, verses 16 and 17, Jesus says, this rich guy, this rich farmer, has run out of places to store all of his wealth. He's so rich, he has no more places to store wealth. So then he, he says, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns, I'll build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich toward God. Jesus is rich man, and James is merchant. They have the exact same problem. If they only knew how short life is. If only they recognized how, how easily and quickly it could slip through their fingers, then their lives would look radically different. And this is a, this is a, uh, man, we are at a disadvantage here in the U.S. We're at a serious disadvantage because our society values youth and strength and vitality we are the country of anti-aging mechanisms we have engineered ways to look and feel younger there's there's this entrepreneur his name is david axel google him later if you'd like he is absolutely convinced and he's not like he's not in, he's not insane or he has no issues or anything he is absolutely convinced that he will live to be 180 years old because he, he has developed this thing called biohacking, where he hacks his own biology. And he's convinced that he's going to live to 180 years, at least. And at, at, at the same time, at the same time, we live very separate from death. We, most of us, on a regular basis, see no kinds of death. We don't see human death, 
or animal death. The only type of death we see is when we kill flies or when we forget to water our house plants. That's it. This environment of inordinately valuing youth and ignoring death, it impacts us. It impacts the way that we think. So many of us, but I do want to give a caveat here. Not everyone. This is not, this is definitely not everyone. And my personality type are way more prone to this than other personality types, okay? So I'm not talking like at you. I'm talking about us. So some people are painfully aware of their own frailty and of the evanescence of life. But a lot of us, we act and live as if death was not like a real thing for us. Right? We, we, we function often as if we were invincible. Right? In many ways, we function as if, as if modern medicine, or maybe to some alternative medicine, were the answer to just all of the problems, all of the medical problems. We act as if we're going to live together forever, even though we know we're not, but we just kind of like act that way. And then as a result of losing touch with this reality, of ignoring our own frailty, frailty we, we, we live, in, in a sense, in a, in a dream world. And we, we, we grow entitled. We think that we deserve good health. And anything other than good health, it's not fair. And then in our minds, we become some type of, like, superhuman, like, mini-god thing that we've basically, we've basically defeated death. Until, of course, we're slapped in the face with the truth. Until we realize how, la- how little we control our own today, much less tomorrow. And that can come with a medical diagnosis, that can come with a freak accident, or it can just be this creeping realization due to the, like, the aches and pains of getting out of bed. Some of you probably know that in my extended family, we experienced this this week, like an unexpected health crisis that brought the possibility of a far, far too early death. It was, it was like a bucket of cold water waking us up from a dream in which, in this dream, everything goes well and we all live forever and, and you know, everything goes as planned. James would call this this, this failure to recognize our own frailty, he would call it arrogance, which is evil. It's arrogant because it fails to recognize that life is a gift given by God. And this flawed view view of life, this flawed way of understanding our life, all it does is it feeds our illusion of autonomy. And it pushes us to find ways to make our lives better, to make us more comfortable, and more secure. And, it, and we do that through the pursuit of prosperity. Now, I, I, I don't want you all to take this the wrong way. Um, I'm not saying that we should all become depressed. That would literally kill me. I, that's not the point. We shouldn't be thinking about death all the time and just be dwelling on that and like live mopey, sad lives. What I'm saying is that we need to have a healthy understanding of our own finitude. We have to have a healthy understanding of who we are and what we are. We should recognize that our life is completely dependent on God. Our lives are gifts from God. 
And God is both the creator and the sustainer. Right? If the Lord wills, we will live. So how would that self-understanding change the way that we orient our lives? How would, that, how would that way of seeing ourselves change the way that we live? That's a question we need to think about. Now I want to talk about the second uh, part, or sorry, the first part of the statement, which is the second failure. The first part of the statement is, if the Lord wills. Right? This is a conditional statement that recognizes that that plans and life depend on the Lord's will. And, and it demonstrates the ma- merchant's failure to recognize the sovereignty of God over everything, over life and over tomorrow. So if the Lord wills. I want to tell you two things that this does not, I think that this does not mean. Two things I'm pretty sure he's not talking about, and then that will lead us to what I think he is talking about. So first off, this is not a simple phrase that should be added to the beginning of all of our sentences that have to do with the future, okay? It shouldn't be like we just say, Lord willing, I will do this or that all the time. That's not what he's talking about. This book, the book of James, is all about wholehearted devotion to God. Wholehearted devotion to God. And wholehearted devotion requires a consistency between the heart and the mouth, between what we say and what we do, between what we believe and how we act. So it is zero good No good at all to say, Lord willing, if that change in vocabulary is not accompanied with a coinciding change in the heart. Or one might say, a life orientation change. Okay? That's the first thing that it does not mean. The second thing that it does not mean. This is not a command from God to try to figure out what his plan is for our life. It's not a recommendation to forego action until we know the exact next step that we're supposed to take. Right? That's not how the Bible talks about God's will. Far too often, we we end up waiting on God to reveal the next thing. And and we think that that is the spiritual route. That that is what what, uh, submission to God means. I don't, don't have enough time to unpack a biblical theology of God's will. I'll leave that to Mike and Josh for another day. Um, but I would encourage you all to actually maybe to research that a little bit, to look into it. Um, but let me just say this. Our vocation as humans, so we, we, we were placed on this earth. If you go back to Genesis, our, 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 our vocation is to represent God. That's what we're here for. And he's revealed his character and his moral and ethical will in Scripture. He's shown us what he's like. He, he's shown us his moral and ethical will. And then in Jesus we, Jesus, we see the radiance of the glory of God. We see the exact imprint of his nature. So he, he's told us what he loves. He's told us what he hates. And he has demonstrated a way to live. We have enough information to know God's will. He wants us to live according to his own self-revelation. So seek to know God. Seek to know and apply God's moral will. And when you have to make a decision that is not clearly right or wrong, which happens to all of us pretty frequently, then seek wisdom and pray and pursue wise counsel and then do something. So 
give you a couple examples here. So it would be complete nonsense, right? It would be complete nonsense to say, if the, if the Lord wills, I'll live, got to get all that in there, and I'll make millions of dollars, and I'll buy a mansion, and I'll buy a yacht, and I'll share it with no one. Okay, that's complete nonsense. Why is that complete nonsense? It's complete nonsense because we already know that God does not will that. We know he doesn't will that because he does not will self-indulgence and selfishness. God wills generosity and sacrificial giving. Okay? Another example. It might be complete nonsense for you or me to say, if the Lord wills, I'll live and I'll take the promotion. It might be nonsense. Because maybe that promotion comes packaged with a requirement to engage in unethical business practices. Or maybe that promotion um, comes uh, packaged with a, a requirement to give one more piece of your soul to your job. So now you have to neglect your spouse or your kids or the, the elderly neighbor that just needs someone to check in on him or her. But maybe it is God's will because maybe that promotion will open up new opportunities for you to use your creativity your problem solving for the glory of God does that, does that make sense what I think what, what I think James is trying to do he's, he's not trying to challenge us to forego planning until we know exactly what we're supposed to do we know the exact next steps he also does not want us shooting blindly just hoping we land on God's will like like Hope to then this one, oh, that's got to be it. And then, like, that, that's not what he's going for either. He envisions a life that recognizes God's sovereignty over everything. And it seeks to plan and live according to God's character. Or another way to say it would be that rather than an autonomous life oriented toward profit, James wants Christians to live in submission to God, oriented toward doing good. He wants Christians to live in submission to God, oriented toward doing good. And that last piece, the oriented toward doing good, it comes in verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So in my preparation... I'm going to be honest, this verse, I, had, I was really confused. I was stumped. I had no idea. Like, it was like, why is this here? It made no sense to me why this verse was the conclusion. So after a lot of thought and the help of some good commentaries and some good conversation, I think, I think, uh, I think James has two reasons for including it. So on, on the one hand, what he's saying is that if, if you know if you know that this is how you should express yourself, right? Rather than arrogantly assuming autonomy, you should submit to God's will in the way that you express yourself about future plans, and you don't do that, then you're sinning. I think that's the surface meaning. But I think there's, there's, a, there's another deeper level. And, and I think when he, he calls us to seek to do good, to do the right thing, I think he's talking about all of the good all of the right things that he has been talking about for the whole book. But 
So what I mean is a life submitted to God's will, right? A, a person that is able to say, if the Lord wills, I will live and do this or that. They'll express their wholehearted devotion to God by doing good. And James, James has been harping on this good throughout the whole book. So he, there's, there's a bunch of times when he, where he says, he's talked about things that we need to do. So in James 1.22, he says, be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Uh, James 1.26 and 27, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, that person, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. James 2.14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? James 3.13, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So he's been talking about this, like, just the whole book. Like, do good. And he talked about different ways to do that. And, and in particular, in this passage, James is talking to these merchants that, whose autonomous lives are oriented towards accumulating wealth, towards prospering. And he says, you do good. And so I think what he's talking about is strategizing how to use your wealth for good. So let me try to summarize what I've said so far. And then I'm going to go into some, some ways that we can actually put this into practice. Or more than put it into practice, think about how, what this means for our lives. Um, so, so James is calling out these merchants whose autonomous lives are oriented towards prospering. And he tells them that they have made these two massive flaws in calculation, errors in calculation. Right? First, they fail to recognize their own finitude and frailty. And they also fail to recognize that God is sovereign over life and over tomorrow. And as a result of these failures, they are laser-focused on prospering, right? So they're, they're, they're arrogant, and, and their, their confidence, and their presumption, all of that is an evil boast. So as a result, they are in sin. And if you read the next six verses, which uh, we'll read next week, um, what we'll see is that they are in serious danger of achieving their goal of becoming these rich, uh, wealthy individuals and being condemned for self-indulgence and for the evil that they committed on the way to prosperity. So James then challenges his audience, which is made up of both merchants and non-merchants, people that have means and people that do not have means. And what I've said is that the implications of this teaching are for all of us, right? For poor people and rich people. What James says is that Christians are those who live lives submitted to God and oriented toward doing good. And the good toward which they're oriented is probably, first and foremost, a connection to their relationship with money and wealth. I could have probably just said that and been a much shorter sermon. So what does this mean? How are we supposed to, like, what, what is, uh, where do we go with this? A life submitted to God that is oriented toward doing good looks structurally different. It requires strategy, and it requires planning. These merchants have invested time and energy strategizing for their business. And I don't know about you, but throughout my life, 
I have spent considerable time and considerable energy strategizing how to invest, how to get the next job, how to make more money. How often have I spent considerable time and energy strategizing how to do good? Seeking opportunities to give my money to those in need. Crafting plans to visit orphans and widows. What I'm talking about is not a change in, in attitude or even a change in like an action here or there. What I'm talking about is a different life orientation. A life that is directed at a different thing. A life where energy and creativity and effort are exerted in a pursuit of doing good. And for many of us, myself included, this is probably going to require pretty significant structural change. So we need to think about what barriers, what are the things that are keeping us from doing the good that we know we should do? What are some things that keep us from doing the good that we know we should do? So often when I encounter an opportunity to do good, and it's a good that I know someone needs to do, one of the barriers that I face is that I do not have time. I don't have time. I'm too busy. And I can't do that good that I know I probably should do. Another barrier that I have is that I, 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 I can't spare that money. I can't spare that money. Because I need it to cover my own life. I do have four kids. So time and my own needs are significant barriers. But what if I were to strategize? And not be like surprised by this, oh, opportunity to do good. Uh, oh, shoot, I don't have time. Or I don't have money. What if I were to strategize and to plan? So what, what if I sought a less demanding job? So that every Monday evening, I could go and volunteer at the orphanage. Or what, what if I downsized my house so that I didn't have to spend so much time and mental energy making sure that I have enough money to cover my standard of living so that then I can give more freely? What if I invested my companies and my main criteria for investing for my retirement was I want to find companies that do good in this world, that are socially responsible, that, that care about God's world and protect the environment. And, and, uh, and that was the way that I decided how I was going to spend my money and not, hey, financial advisor, can you show me which funds have performed the best over the last five years? Or what if, what if I actually became invested in my job? Like really invested, even though I don't actually like this job. But, I, but, I, but I'm invested because this job gives me an opportunity to serve people. So you'll notice that all of those were questions. They were all questions, and that was on purpose. We all have different gifts. We all have different talents. And I do not presume to know what God wants you to do and how he wants you to steward your gifts and talents. Honestly, <laughs> I am just trying to figure this out. I have no idea of the correct answer to a lot of these questions. 
But I ask questions because questions make us think. And thinking is what we need to do. If we are going to be the type of people that say from the heart, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. We have to think. We have to think. We have to be willing to part with things, and we have to be willing to live upon our cultural lives. So I want to I want to end with 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 this. James says that our life is a mist. It appears for a little time, and then vanishes. And this both raises and lowers the stakes. So on the one hand, if we only have a little bit of time, we gotta take advantage of it, right? Like YOLO. But in another sense, in another sense, we have we have eternity. To look forward to. We have eternity to look forward to. And in chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, James says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Everything we have has been freely given to us from a God who loves us. And in Jesus, we've been welcomed into his family through Jesus' death and resurrection freely. And we are first fruits of this new thing that God is doing in this world. We get the opportunity to, to be that new thing that God is doing in this world. And one day, this whole world, this world, not some heaven in air that, that doesn't have dirt and, and trees and mountains. Like, God is renewing this world. And in this renewed world, there will be harmony, there will be peace, there will not be scarcity, and there will be no unmet need. So as Christians, we are the first fruits of that. We get to live into that reality today. We get to exhibit that future reality. We get to do it as those whose lives are submitted to God and are oriented toward good. This is a lot to think about. At least it has been for me. And I think it's, it's I, I, I don't know, I've been confronted with how important this is. God has something for us. And the question that I personally have to answer is do I believe that? Do I believe that this is the new, that God is doing a new thing? Do I believe that there will be this world with no unmet needs and no scarcity? Because if I do, then that should impact how I live today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are good. We thank you for all of the gifts that you've given us. We pray, Lord, that you would strengthen our hearts and strengthen our faith, that we would trust in you and be willing to submit to you. We pray it's in your name. Amen.